Hi, this is Hannah Langdell and Rachel Hine, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on the Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. Stay tuned after for a brief message from our sponsor. Today we'll be continuing our quick hit series, which are taken from questions from the previous five date years of in-service questions. And our topic today is facial palsy and reconstruction. Rachel, do you want to start us off? I would love to. So we're going to start. We have three different topics, like Hannah said, facial reanimation, cheek reconstruction, and lip reconstruction. So we'll start with the facial reanimation anatomy, which is what we are frequently tested on. For the facial nerve, there are three segments, the intracranial, infratemporal, and extratemporal. The ipsilateral supranuclear lesions give contralateral facial paralysis, but maintain frontalis function. And this is if there is a lesion from the intracranial portion of the facial nerve. The infratemporal region contains the narrowest portion of the fallopian canal called the meatal foramen. And this is why temporal fractures can cause facial paralysis because it's going through a very small bony canal. And then the extratemporal region is the region we know. And this region begins when the nerve exits the stylomastoid foramen. Um, the fa- remember that the facial nerve is one centimeter deep, just inferior and medial to the tragal pointer. There are five branches of the facial nerve, the temporal branch, which is the superior branch. So I'm going from superior to inferior, zygomatic, buccal, mandibular, and cervical branches. These branches lie deep to the SMAS and arborize within the parotid gland. So remember that the temporal branch and the marginal mandibular branch have limited arborization. So injury to them is likely to cause paralysis. There are superior and inferior divisions of the facial nerve. The superior division typically contains the temporal, zygomatic, and buccal branches, and the inferior division contains the marginal, mandibular, and cervical branches. And keep in mind that there are a lot of anatomic variations, which is, I guess, interesting, but not important for in-service. The temporal branch is located on Patangi's line, and he's got a Patangi's line and point and all sorts of things, but this is Patangi's line, and this is 0.5 centimeters below the tragus to 1.5 centimeters above the lateral brow, and that is the line of the temporal branch of the facial nerve. Remember that the facial nerve lies within or just deep to the temporoparietal fascia, and it does not arborize, like I said, so it is more likely for permanent injury. So for the marginal mandibular nerve, remember that this lies superficial to the facial artery and vein. So water under the bridge, that's how I remember it. So the marginal mandibular nerve will be above the facial artery and vein. The nerve is located above the inferior border of the mandible in 81% of people. And remember that all muscles of facial innervation receive their innervation from the deep surface, except for the acronym MLB, which is mentalis, levator, anguli, oris, and the buccinator. For a facial exam, you know that the frontalis raises eyebrows, orbicularis closes eyelids, zygomatic branch is for smile, and orbicularis purses the lips. Hannah, why don't you take us through some of the etiologies of facial paralysis? So the etiologies of facial paralysis include trauma, infections, temporal bone fractures, Bell's palsy, parotid tumors, and other malignant etiologies. Trauma is the second most common cause and is usually due to a transverse temporal bone fracture. It can also be caused by penetrating wounds. And remember that lacerations medial to the orbital canthus do not require repair because of nerve arborization, as Rachel talked about. Nerve repairs should be performed before 72 hours if possible. Nerve transmitters are still there, so you can stimulate the nerve for identification. And after 72 hours, the nerve transmitter hole becomes depleted. 
wait at least six months after repair because it can take at least that long for functional recovery from primary neurography. Bell's palsy is the most common cause of facial paralysis and is associated with pregnancy, and this is a diagnosis of exclusion. The treatment is watchful waiting. These patients recover function within six months of paralysis, and 70% of patients have complete recovery. If it's diagnosed early, steroids can be used within 24 hours of diagnosis. If there is no improvement after three weeks, then at that time you can get a CT and MRI. Um, patients with Bell's palsy, most often you'll see ectropion and inability to close the eyelid. And another etiology is tumors, and you should think neoplasm if there is unilateral facial weakness that slowly increases for more than three months. And this can be due to a cholesteatoma, a primary tumor, parotid tumor, an acoustic neuroma, or a metastasis. Viral etiologies include varicella, herpes, and EBV. And we know that Ramsey-Hunt syndrome is due to varicella zoster virus infection, and this leads to facial paralysis, ear pain, rash, and a rash in the external auditory canal. And this is treated with steroids. For infectious etiologies, these include Lyme disease and HIV. It can cause bilateral facial palsy. And remember that first line treatment for Lyme disease is doxycycline. In pediatric patients, we'll often have questions about Mobius syndrome. And this can lead to unilateral or bilateral loss of IAB duction as well as unilateral or bilateral facial paralysis. And this can be accompanied with other cranial nerve palsies. And patients often need a free uh, neurotized muscle transfer. Kind of an unusual etiology is CULP or C-U-L-L-P, which is congenital unilateral lower lip palsy. And these patients have normal resting tone, but have marginal mandibular dysfunction and other major congenital anomalies are present in three-fourths of these children. Then a pediatric patient with unilateral facial weakness, you should obtain a CT scan to evaluate uh, the temporal bone. Rachel, why don't you take us through some of the testing for these? All right, so there's just a couple things to note for the exam. On physical exam or on pictures, you'll see a shape deformity. There are some different testing maneuvers like the nerve excitability test, which is subjective, the ENOG, which applies current to the stylomastoid foramen, but the EMG is most commonly used, and this measures muscle activity, remember electromyography. You'll want to get it two to three weeks after paralysis, and you will see fibrillations and sharp waves. So that is a sign of denervation. I know in Janus it says that it's also a sign of reinnervation, but you have to really look at your EMG to tell whether fibrillations is active denervation de or reinnervation. The grading scale, we use the House of Brackman facial nerve grading system, which I won't go over, but it goes from normal to total no facial function. And then treatment in general, the goal of any kind of treatment for facial paralysis is to restore symmetry of the face at rest and in dynamic expression for cultural social interaction. And there's different treatments that we can apply for different times of injury. If it's less than 12 months, generally, you can perform a nerve repair, an ipsilateral nerve graft, or a cross-facial nerve graft. Remember that after 18 to 24 months, the motor end plates die and the muscles will atrophy, so this will no longer be an option. Between 12 and 24 months, you can still perform a nerve repair grafting, or you can do a transfer like the hypoglossal or masseter or a jump graft. And then greater than 24 months, you're looking at static reconstruction or cross-facial nerve grafting and free muscle transfer. 
for reinnervation or primary nerve repair or interpositional nerve graft, remember that the axons grow one millimeter a day. So sometimes you'll see questions about a patient that underwent a repair and it's two months and they still have no function and it's the answer will be observation. Cross-facial nerve grafting is indicated when the proximal ipsilateral facial nerve stump is unavailable for grafting and when the distal stump is present. And you also have to have functional and useful facial muscles that are capable of reinnervation. So three things, you don't have a proximal stump, you have a distal stump, and you have alive motor end plates. This uses the contralateral facial nerve. And typically autograft is used like a sural nerve graft and it can be performed in a one or two stage. So you can, a one stage is where you repair both the distal stump of the facial nerve and one of the branches of the contralateral facial nerve. Or it can be in two stage, which is where you repair the uh, distal into the graft in a second stage nine to 12 months later. And you can assess its readiness by a Tenel sign. A question we had about outcomes, they largely depend on axonal density of your donor nerve. And a babysitter procedure can be performed at the same time, particularly if denervation has been present for greater than six months. And this is used with a hypoglossal or masseter. And this preserves the motor end plates while facial nerve is growing through the graft. Because remember, contralateral is a great distance to travel one millimeter a day. So you may want a babysitter like a masseter hypoglossal to that distal nerve stump. And remember, any kind of nerve transfer will be a faster to functional reanimation. And that was also a test question. Hannah, do you want to go over some of the dynamic and static components of facial reanimation? Dynamic reinstruction is used when the facial muscles will not provide any useful function after reanimation. It can be used in conjunction with a cross-face nerve graft or an ipsilateral nerve to master transfer. And there are several advantages to a microvascular transfer versus a regional muscle transfer. There is increased ability for spontaneous expression. The regional muscle options are the temporalis and the masseter. Most commonly, we'll use the gracilis for dynamic reconstruction, but you can also use the pec minor, the serratus, or latissimus. And most commonly, this is done in two stages. So in the first stage, the cross-face nerve graft is performed, and this is followed by the free muscle transfer in the second stage. And one-stage procedures involve ipsilateral nerve to the masseter. The gracilis is most frequently used due to the reliable vascular pedicle, one direction of pull, there's no overlying tendon, and there is a single nerve. The vector should be in line with the pull of the zygomaticus major, and this is a, a question from a couple years ago. In terms of static brow procedures, the brow lift is used to address asymmetry. And remember, there are coronal, direct, superciliary, and endoscopic approaches, and you can weaken the contralateral side with Botox. In terms of the eye, uh, we had mentioned before, you can use a, in a previous episode, the gold weight in an upper lid. And this is again, placed superficial to the levator intarsal plate with the inferior portion of the weight, two to three millimeters from the lash line between the medial and central thirds of the lid to cover the cornea. And supportive measures include taping and eye drops. For the lower eyelid, this can include canthopexy for paralytic ectropion or full thing of skin graft for cicatricial ectropion. <laughs> uh, for nose, the nasalis and levator labii superioris are responsible for dilating the nasal apertures. And this is via the buccal branch of the facial nerve. And we can treat stenosis with slings, rhinoplasty, and suture suspension. For the lips, often we use fascial strips. Uh, for example, the 
uh, TFL for static suspension slaying of the soft tissues. Fascia is anchored to the orbicularis oris and attached to the zygomatic bone or temporalis aponeurosis. And because these can loosen over time, you may need a surgical revision to tighten uh, later in life. And then finally, you can perform Botox to the platysma. Great. Thanks, Hannah. There's a couple things just to note. Just remember that the nerve to the masseter is most frequently used as a donor nerve um, from the ipsilateral side or a donor nerve to power a free functional or a dynamic transfer. So that will be your answer question. It's also, it's also present in functional and patients with Mobius syndrome, which we've been tested on. Moving on to complications. So there is synkinesis and hyperkinesis, which we'll talk about. And synkinesis is the unintentional motion in one area of the face that is produced during intentional movement of another area of the face. This is due to aberrant regeneration and the treatment is facial retraining and Botox. So you can see either of those in your test questions. Hyperkinesis is the hyperactivity of the contralateral normal side after facial reanimation. And this may be treated with Botox or again, mirror feedback. For miscellaneous, remember that the buccal branch of the facial nerve travels with the parotid duct in the cheek. So if you have a buccal branch injury, which you can diagnose by missing lip elevation, you want to explore the parotid duct by cannulating Stinson's duct intraorally, and a duct injury can result in a sialocele and edema. Okay, so now we've done facial reanimation, so we have two more things. We have cheek reconstruction, which is really short, and then lip reconstruction. So Hannah, why don't you get us started on cheek reconstruction? Okay, so in terms of cheek defects, there are three zones. Zone one is suborbital, zone two is preauricular, and zone three is buccomandibular. Uh, for zone one defects, if the defect is less than four centimeters, then you can perform a local flap such as rhomboid, V to Y, bilobe, or forehead flap. And if the defect is greater than four centimeters, then a cervicofascial flap is preferred. Other options include tissue expansion, free flaps, or temporalis flap. For zone two, zone two defects, again, primary closure, full thickness skin grafts, local flaps, and regional flaps are used. Uh, the cervicofacial flap is used for posterior and large anterior defects, and the blood supplies from the facial artery. The cervicopectoral flap is for defects six to 10 centimeters and is derived from the IMA. And there, you could also consider the submental flap or tissue expansion. For zone three, you need to consider lining and soft tissue coverage. And lining is often with the hemi-tongue flap. You can use buckle fat, the masseter, uh, fam flap, submental. And then for tissue coverage, again, primary closure. Uh, also consider local flaps, regional flaps, such as submental or advancement flaps, tissue expansion, and free flaps. The pec major flap is often used for salvage. We mentioned the cervicofacial advancement flap, and this is good for temple defects uh, in zone one or zone two. And then the <laughs> submental artery flap is for zone two or three defects and is based off the facial artery. And in terms of the anatomy, the facial artery runs between the horizontal ramus of the mandible and submandibular glands. It courses down and ends close to the mandibular symphysis, and the vein goes through the lower pole of the parotid and drains into the IJ. Finally, we have the mustardi flap, and this is for superior cheek defects, or as we talked about in our eyelid lecture, can be used for lower eyelid defects and can be done for a medial cheek rotation. So that takes us through cheek re reconstruction, and you want to get started with lip. 
Sure. So the lipostatic units include the oral sphincter, the commissures, the filtrum, and the vermilion, and you reconstruct based on the defect. And there's a great diagram or algorithm in Janus, which you should refer to, but it basically depends on if you're talking about the upper lip or the lower lip and what's your defect size, one third, two thirds, or greater than two thirds. So if it's the upper lip and it's a up to, you know, one third, you can do a primary closure if it's lateral. You can do a nasolabial flap if the vermilion is intact. And if it's a central defect, you can do a perialer crescentic excision. For two thirds, which were typically tested on, a central defect, you can do an abbe flap, um, which is that can reconstruct the filtrum. If it's lateral, then you can still do an abbe flap if it does not involve the commissure. And if the commissure is involved, then you want to do an S lander flap. So S lander flap is for a lateral defect, one to two thirds of the lip, upper lip if the commissure is involved. If it's greater than two thirds of the lip and you have sufficient cheek tissue for a central or lateral defect, you can do a Bernard burrow. So that's for basically an entire lip defect of the lower lip or for a large, large defect of the upper lip. If there's insufficient tissue, you need to start thinking about a distant tissue transfer or free flaps. For the lower lip, up to one third, you can close primarily. One to two thirds, if there's sufficient lip tissue, you can either do an Abbe flap with if the commissure is not involved. If the commissure is involved, then you want to do an S lander or carapanzic flap. Um, you can also do a carapanzic flap if the commissure is not involved, but if you have your Abbe or S lander, those are probably your first options. If there's insufficient lip tissue, then again, you're thinking of Bernard Burrow, which is the biggest of all these. And then if it's more than two thirds of the lip, so you can do a carapanzic up to 80%, but if it's greater than 80%, you're looking at the Bernard Burrow flap. And then again, if you have insufficient tissue, then you're looking at a free flap. Just a couple of other things to talk about. The modiolus is the attachment site lateral to the commissure for the multiple muscles. Reconstruction of the orbicularis is important for sphincteric competence. So that is why the carapanzic flap works well. The blood supply to the lip is the superior and inferior labial arteries. And one of, the, one of the complications to talk about for the carapanzic flap, it's used for central defects, but remember if it's the larger the defect is, the more risk for microstomia. So that's why you can't use it if the defects are greater than 80%. You wanna start thinking about the Bernard Burrow flap. Um, and this carapanzic flap preserves innervation of the orbicularis, unlike some of the other flaps. The Bernard Burrow flap, just to keep in mind is insensate, but you can, apply a Webster modification that preserves the innervation. And then finally, sometimes we're tested on total lip reconstruction. So if you have insufficient lip or cheek tissue. For total lip, lip reconstruction, you can use the radial forearm free flap with a palmaris longest sling. This is static. If you want functional, you can use a functional gracilis and a split thickness skin graft to maintain movement of the lip and have a superior aesthetic result. So that is it for our quick hits, facial reanimation, cheek reconstruction, and lip reconstruction. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. We would like to thank Allergan for their continued support of our podcast. Allergan Aesthetics is now part of AbbVie, an international leader in many different therapeutic categories. Many of our topics and therapies we discuss on our podcast are provided by Allergan. They continue to be a leader in the fields of breast reconstruction, abdominal wall reconstruction, medical aesthetics, and much more. Additionally, they are dedicated to supporting the education of plastic surgery residents and plastic surgeons across the country.